0: Although structural racism is well-documented as an important driver of healthcare inequities, its effects on medical students, trainees, and faculty has received less attention. One contributor to structural racism in academic medicine that may often get overlooked is aversive racism. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Jennifer Lucero, an Associate Professor and the Associate Dean for Admissions at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Dr. Lucero has co-authored a perspective article about aversive racism in academic medicine. Dr. Lucero, could you start by explaining exactly what you mean by aversive racism? How does it differ from other forms of racism?
1: Yes, I'm happy to. So I think you have to think about aversive racism along the lines of a complex work within social psychology theories. So one has, and I think we've all heard of the idea of implicit bias in this theory of well-meaning individuals who have an unconscious bias. But when you think about aversive racism, it actually is individuals who have an implicit bias. In addition, they have what we call an in-group bias, which is a bias of their own group or belonging within their own group. This is also relatively unconscious. And individuals who themselves as educated, intellectuals and progressive, They really see only one type of racism, overt racism, yet many of these individuals engage in what we call aversive racism or aversive racism comments or acts. These are unconscious and they allow them to view themselves as not racist. These behaviors act to help preserve the hierarchy of the dominant group, which we talk about this in the perspective piece. And this actually has ways in implicating and creating continued issues around structural racism in academic medicine.
0: So how does aversive racism show up in areas such as medical school residency admissions decisions in faculty promotion?
1: So we actually outlined one really interesting study that was done by Davidio looking at this, actually looked at it from the perspective of admissions in undergraduate. What they did was they actually took subjects who were identified racially as white. They asked them to rate different students for admissions to the undergraduate program. And these were students that they designed to have both high academics, so high GPA and high standardized test scores. They had another group that had low GPA, low standardized test scores, and then they had a group that was sort of in the middle with relatively not really high, but not really low GPA or standardized test scores. They were really that ambiguous group. And so when they asked the study participants to do this and they only indicated um, one other factor, whether the applicant was black or white, They found that when the participants of the study who were all white evaluated those that had really strong academics and strong standardized test scores, whether they were white or black, they considered that they should be admitted. When they had lower test scores, lower academics, regardless of whether they were black or white applicants, they did not accept them. When they had ambiguous criteria and it wasn't exactly highest M scores or highest GPA, they actually disproportionately offered and gave admission to the white applicants and less to the black applicants and used terms such as, I don't think this person is the right fit. And this has been replicated over and over with whether it would be job applications or in other admissions. So it's really in a situation where you have ambiguous criteria that it allows for someone to have their aversive racism can actually show itself in these ways. And I think we look at executive leadership, if we look at medical school admissions, when we look at criteria that, you know, what makes a leader, there's a lot of great qualities. Some people don't have one and some have others. You don't expect someone to have every single component of leadership. And it can become ambiguous. And in those situations, We see when you have a group that's making those decisions, not diverse, not from a different lived experience, you can see aversive racism show itself in these different ways. Again, what we talked about in the article are these various comments and quotes that have all been used and we've seen and heard throughout our academic careers.
0: Looking further into that, you say in your article that aversive racism flourishes when decisions are left to judgment calls by people who don't recognize the effects of intergroup dynamics on their thought processes. So what are the intergroup dynamics that contribute to this type of racism?
1: There's a couple different theories that we bring up in the paper. One of them is the idea of in group and out group and in group bias. So when we think about that, individuals identify themselves as a group, that grouping can be anything. It could be race, it could be individuals who Like a sports team, we always have this identity of an allegiance to a particular sports team, but we also have strong allegiance to particular religions, races, that we belong to a group. And so that in-group is our group that we identify with and we have this in-group bias. The out-group, that's the they, that's the others. And so in-group bias is that tendency to favor the in-group at the expense of the out-group, even if you don't personally benefit. And one of the things that we see oftentimes is what we call this fundamental group attribution error. So if you have an in-group bias, someone in your in-group does something that's positive, you'll attribute that to them as a person. They're strong, they're intellectual. If someone from the out-group does something positive, you may say, well, that they were just lucky and you do the same if there is a negative result. And so. In addition to that, you have set up this idea that we bring up is the social dominance theory, and it's a how we organize groups. It's a group-based hierarchy. And I think others have talked about it in different ways, but you essentially have a hierarchy set up in society where you have a dominant group. That dominant group has most of what society values, whether it's the financial, the power, the privilege, and then you have individuals that are in that subordinate group. And when you have this hierarchy set up, the hierarchy is maintained by what we describe as these legitimizing myths. They're compelling stories that the dominant group tells to justify the hierarchy, whether that's manifest destiny, deserved positions of power. We hear all the time this person is self-made. We hear that there's a level playing field and you just have to work hard to get something or that we live in a colorblind society and racism no longer exists. We see this with the efforts to reject affirmative action, missions processes in California, we have Prop 209. All of these are ideas that there is this legitimizing myth that allows the group hierarchy to stay in place. And so when we think about that, we think about institutional racism, which is in institutions discriminating whether it's financial, legal, or educational systems. And then you have the interpersonal racism. And that's where we see the overt and aversive racism through members of dominant groups against those that are less dominant group. And then we do bring up this concept that is internalized racism, where it's conscious or unconscious acceptance of this racial hierarchy by those in the less dominant group. And so when you see these intergroup dynamics at play, you can see how the the design of aversive racism is used to continue to maintain this group-based hierarchy and to allow the dominant group to stay in place. And as long as we continue to have this, it's going to be really challenging to dismantle structural racism. It's going to be challenging to actually make changes in health disparities and provide equity of care. And we need to look at these mechanisms and start to break them down.
0: In that regard, given the extent to which aversive racism may be subconscious, how can leaders in academic medicine challenge their own thought processes and their role in upholding the existing hierarchy?
1: I think part of that problem is really understanding how aversive racism works. I think there's been a lot of work in sort of describing the implicit bias in the IAT test, but we haven't gone deep enough into really looking at ways in which aversive racism has impacted how we choose leaders, how we make changes, and I think part of that has to be looking really deeply at the processes that we use and looking across, as we mentioned in the paper, if you look at the leadership levels across academic medicine, despite the fact that we have made inroads in admitting medical students from more diverse populations, you look at the leadership levels in academic medicine You look at the deans, you look at the presidents, the provosts, you look at chairs of departments, it is not diverse. And so, what's happening there and how are we elevating individuals? It starts right from the beginning. And so, our leaders need to look at the processes that they use to choose candidates, how they value it. And we need to start calling it out and asking ourselves what is the benefit of the hierarchy if it is continuing to allow? structural racism to continue, if it's continuing to allow health disparities to exist, and really start to think about how we can break that down. And I think about it in healthcare. We do a lot of work on understanding the mechanisms, cell signaling pathways. Amazing work has been done with the development of the COVID-19 vaccines, but we haven't really dug deeply into the mechanisms by which we have structural racism in existence and how we can start to break it down. And I think this piece is really to start that conversation and looking at it in a way that we as physicians are comfortable looking at mechanisms and starting to look at solutions. We need to do that the same for what we're seeing in the areas of structural racism and aversive racism.
0: Thank you, Dr. Lucero.